Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1310, entitled The Enola Games Afoot. Our podcast title is Soul Food Pod. I'm Rob Ooh, that's a good. That's a good one. <laughs> and Megan McHugh. Yeah, uh, we, we're we're so taken with our cleverness. <laughs> All right, we've called the episode "Those Things" because we're talking about Enola Holmes, which is a new movie on Netflix. Bit of a Netflix day today, actually, and we're also catching in that net the Alive movie, which is mm. hasht- hashtag Alive. Yes. <laughs> Don't forget that hashtag. <laughs> mm. uh, now, the thing about uh, the Enola Holmes movie is that it is an adaptation. Mm, indeed, yes. It's based on a book series. <laughs> yes, and that would be by Nancy Springer. And it's the first book in the series, so that makes sense. I have never read the books. Never, no. never even heard of them, actually. Me uh, neither. I don't believe we're their target audience, but I think it's kind of a fun premise to take the kind of Sherlock Holmes world and make it into kind of a young, like aimed at younger people, female protagonist, like a Nancy Drew-esque type of thing. I thought that's kind of a cool idea. And so I'm really happy that maybe this film has brought more attention to the books uh, and maybe some more people will pick them up, give them a read. Well, of course... I am never far from, in fact, usually a, a mission pipes fro away <laughs> from, you know, dozens of different Sherlockian mm. adaptations, books and movies and television shows and so on. Mm. Uh, there have been several attempts to recast Holmes in a, a sort of a, a younger mode, uh, usually Holmes himself, like particularly the uh, fairly famous movie Young Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one... Is yes, I think they are actually uh, going for Nancy Drew in this. It feels so much like one of those. Uh, maybe not so much um, any of the other young female detective series, which we've looked at before. And you know the one that I'm thinking mm. of. <laughs> yes, yes, our uh, recent foray into Miss Scarlet and the Duke. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I, actually, that that felt very Sherlockian too, in all but yeah. name. So, all right, this is a, a recent film, and they were actually going to release this at the cinema, but the pandemic scuttled those plans, and they ended up putting them into putting the distribution rights into Netflix. This is a fairly simple premise. Millie Bobby Brown plays Enola Holmes. She is 16 years old in both reality and in the notionally fictional world of this show. She is, of course, the sister of Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes. Indeed, yes. Younger sister, feisty wild child of the family. Mm. And her mother, 
Helena Bonham Carter, <laughs> has taught her many things, everything from jiu-jitsu to chess. Mm. So she's a bit of a prodigy as well. Clearly, it runs in the family. Practically gallops. And after the disappearance of her mother, she sets out to locate her, to sleuth her down. And you wouldn't credit it, but her two brothers get in the way of that. Mycroft, in particular, gets in the way. And he's a, mm. he's a real mongrel, actually. Yes, he's played with a very kind of... Um bossy gusto in this adaptation by Sam Claflin, mm. I believe, um, who seems to be having a real good time being a bit of a stick in the mud in this. In this, His Mycroft is very heavy-handed and, yeah, a bit a bit sore about everything, I think, and a little bit jealous of, of the other talents in the family, let's say. Well, he's certainly, he certainly knows Stephen Fry, <laughs> who once played Mycroft as well, mm. or any of the other uh, great actors who've played Mycroft along the, through the years. Uh, we re- remember him as Finnick O'Dare in the Hunger Games series mm-hmm. and also in uh, playing Oswald Mosley in Peaky Blinders. So, yeah, he's, a, he's had a bit of a career. <laughs> <laughs> these things. Well, Helena Bonham Carter's been in everything, of course. Oh, yes. We know her from many things. And, and everything in corsets too, come to mm. think of it. Uh, she often plays that kind of role. And here she's very, very eccentric and unconventional in the in the Holmesian era. Uh, mm. I almost She's almost like um, Irene Adler, who's another famous mm. Holmes sort of character. But in this case, she's been really trying to – raise Enola to be independent and free-spirited, and good for her too. Uh, this, of course, will mean that she will be great at swanning around Victorian England. Mm-hmm. And boy, does she. She gets around so much in this by by carriage, by train, by bicycle too at one stage. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she's great in this, I think. And um, we also have a few other people who we've seen before. Bern Gorman. Now, that's a name that should be familiar to fans of Torchwood. Ah. He was one of the main characters in that. He has appeared in Pacific Rim playing a dodgy scientist and in uh, Game of Thrones as well, playing the character of Carl Tanner. And I also remember him in The Man in the High Castle, that Amazon Prime drama. So, yeah, he's he's been getting around a bit. You'll recognise him immediately as you see him. He's got this sort of a sharp face. Yeah. Quite quite literally, and, and he's a bit of a bounder in this one. I'll say no more than that. Uh, another person I noticed uh, was the guy who played um, oh, Mr. Collins in that famous Pride and Prejudice adaptation back in the 80s, you know, the Colin Firth one. Mm, oh, yeah, yes, the adaptation, some people might argue. Yeah, he's playing uh, uh, a relative of another character in this movie, and I, I noticed him immediately. I don't know why that sprang sprang to mind. It's just that he's living in this great mansion with a thousand windows, which is always what Mr. Collins wanted to do in uh, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> uh, Francis de la Tour plays the Dowager, an important character in this movie. Uh, I've seen her so long ago back in a show called Rising Damp. It was a sitcom. She was in that one. More recent fantasy fans will know of her as Madame Olympia Maxime in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. 
So mm. she's in there as well, playing a pivotal role in this story. So, yeah, this is a mystery story. Mm. It uh, is. I mean, oh, we didn't really talk about our main, well, obviously our main gal, Millie. So she's yes. from Stranger Things. I think most people would know her from that. Um, and she was much hyped in that series as being very good acting. And I think it was nice to see her carry a whole film and I definitely think she can do it. And, of course, um, our mate Sherlock, we didn't mention who played him. So we also have Henry Cavill in that role and obviously he's Superman, he's Geralt of Rivia from the Witcher series that was also on Netflix and, oh, we saw him in The Man from UNCLE. He was quite good in that. I think, he did indeed. Well, so. He did indeed. He's, we have seen his chiselled jaw before. Oh, yes. Uh, I actually think he's tremendously miscast as Sherlock Holmes in this. I think they've done him a bit of a disservice because I think he's a – I think in the right part I really like him. I think, unfortunately, this wasn't the role for him and he didn't attack it the way I think it probably should have been played. So a bit of a shame there. It's, it's partly to do with the story as well because both Holmes and, and Mycroft have to fade backwards to help bring Enola's character forwards. Mm, mm. Uh, I just don't feel like they managed to quite get the chemistry going there. No, and that's a shame because he actually Henry Cavill's a fine actor. Yeah, I don't have any yeah. problem with him. No, same. But it kind of looked like they'd stuffed The Witcher into Tweed. Yeah, I think it was just it wasn't quite the right look or feel. I don't think, but but that's okay. But um, and at the same time, I felt he was trying really hard. Mm, yeah, I agree. you know that felt like I, I'm really trying hard to be Sherlock Holmes here, and you know he's got that. He's got that actually nice smile, that mm, engaging mm. smile, which seems very strange on Sherlock Holmes's dial. <laughs> <laughs> he's charismatic for sure, and that's why I think, um, yeah, I, I think he's better suited to different roles anyway. Let's say that. I don't know exactly what those roles are, but uh, this I don't think this was quite the right one for him. <laughs> yeah, good on him for giving it a go, though. You know, but I, I felt I felt they were going for they, – they did mention that Holmes was, was quite the athlete, and of course mm. he was, uh, but mm, I think mm. I think Robert Downey Jr. managed to convey that far better in mm. uh, in the two Holmes movies that he was in. So let's hear a track here by Daniel Pemberton, and it's Wild Child, which is to say Enola Holmes, and it is from the music of that. And again, we were talking the other week about how quickly these soundtracks pop up now. You've got to have it ready to roll, and so they have. This is Alistair Reynolds, creator of the Revelation Space series. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G on three triple R FM. Fasten your safety belts. You're in for a bumpy ride. Could be the story of the movie Enola Holmes, couldn't it? Really, a bumpy ride. Mm. It's such a nice little score, though. I really think that that captures the mood of it. Like it's quite light and delightful, and a lot of fun. I actually think the music in this really did it, uh, lifted it up quite a bit. Uh, I think the score by Daniel Pemberton is really lovely. We are talking about the new Netflix movie, which is to say Enola Holmes, which is about a young woman who is the sister of Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes and is, by golly, out to out to prove that she's just as good at the art of ratocination and deduction as her sibs are. Mm. In fact, she actually seems to be better at it, <laughs> if that's... <laughs> For her, yes. For at this point in time, she shows promise. Let's say that. Yeah, as of course does Millie Bobby Brown in the title role. 
look, she actually just carries this movie, no doubt about it. She picks it up. She runs with it and jumps and fights and does all the other things that she has to do. And they've done this uh, very engaging gimmick with breaking the fourth wall. Mm, yeah. She'll turn to the camera and say, and open up her disguise and says, "Tis I. <laughs> yes. Very, lots of talking to camera, yeah. um, which I guess maybe it's making a comeback. I think uh, after Fleabag, maybe it's the thing to do now, uh, a little bit of fourth wall breaking. I'm not against it. I thought it worked well, and I think she did a very good job. Well, speaking of Fleabag, there may be a reason for that because the director is a veteran of that, Harry Bradbeer. So it makes perfect sense that uh, he's going to adapt that for this. He doesn't seem to have much of a CV in terms of uh, movies before this one, um, but a lot of television shows like uh, Killing Eve and Grant Chester, Prisoner's Wives and um, Outlaws, that sort of show. Gosh, he even goes back to the bill. Oh, (laughs) there you go. And the the writer of this film also with a similar – um, I think it's Kevin Thorne, similar bunch of uh, television shows and so on. Mm, Jack Thorne. Jack yep. Thorne. Okay. And, yeah, I think that kind of does show in this. It doesn't feel as expansive as a movie could be. Mm, mm. I think uh, for me I felt the, like you said, I thought it was she really holds the film. I think the execution is lovely. Like there's some little animation type stylistic things they do, which I think work well. And the music and the way it all comes together, I think is, is, is great. But the plot itself and the stories is nothing that special, really. It's the wrapping that makes it, I think, the film of a quality, of the quality that it is. Um, I mean, you know, we've watched a lot of mysteries. We've watched a lot of deductions on screen. And, you know, I know this is an aimed at, um, Maybe, you know, it's a story of a young woman, but the mystery itself isn't that meaty from my perspective. I won't say any more than that. I would have liked to see a little bit more from from that end, but I will say as she goes about her adventures, she, you know, she attacks everything with gusto. Like you said, she's fighting, she's outwitting, she's really giving it a go on her own. So I think showcasing that side of that character being, you know, finding her independence and whatnot uh, I do think that works, even if the actual mystery um, is is nothing special. Yeah, I think the the other main story strand of her finding her own her own path mm. in life that's probably the major strand. It's not a B plot or anything like that because they want mm, to mm. they want to mew her up in a finishing school, and you know that's all those things that they're they're trying to oppress her spirit and it's very typical of the time and it's the sort of thing that they fight against in so many of these mm. these types of, of of shows and good for her too you know i think that yeah. that's 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 a, a valid point to make in this one and one yeah. the coming of age piece is the is mm. the you're right that's the important part yeah so yeah i enjoyed it I, I watched this movie and i thought that was time well spent i've had fun yeah yeah <laughs> Can't, I agree. Can't say much more than that, really, when you think about it. It's it's what it says on the box, to be honest. Like, if you watch the trailer and you enjoyed that and the kind of vibe it was putting out there, I think it's exactly what it sets out to be, and I think it does it quite well. Like, it's not trying to be a heavy-handed mystery with loads of dark corners and twists and turns. You're right. It's about a young woman's coming of age. It happens to take place in a Sherlock Holmes-esque story. So, yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I thought it was a lot of fun. 
Easily, easily franchise material, this one. Unlike a lot of false starts that I've seen over the last couple of years with different kinds of franchises, I actually think this one, I would watch another one of these. Yeah. Uh, And also I think that I've heard a rumour, how about this, that Henry might end up doing a a Sherlock Holmes series spinning off of this. Interesting. That would be, I'm intrigued, let's say. It would be most singular, at least. (laughs) I'm not sure that's the path. I think, yes, maybe he needs to go down a different path. But anyway, who am I to say? It's quite possible. <laughs> All right. So we actually, you know, maybe he's going to become like, he could He could say to uh, the Batman, hey, I'm a detective too. <laughs> Although there is actually a meme um, with Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch arguing over who was the better Sherlock. Mm-mm-mm. And then Henry Superman shows up and says, you were saying? <laughs> <laughs> I do I do think that it's in regards to that argument, it's a matter of taste between Robert and Benedict. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, Benny Batch has been rumoured to be playing David Bowie. Really? <laughs> really. Uh, um, you know, but, you know, you take these, these rumours to the bank or not and, you know, I just think uh, yeah. it's a possibility. But, um, mm. yeah. Anyway. I'm not sure about that, but. I've been unsure about casting before and proved wrong, so let's see. Yeah, rumours are rumours. The only reason I mention that really is because I want to play a David Bowie track here from his Black Star album, and I was trying to get a Sherlockian sort of feel to it, and there's a a song called Sue, or In a Season of Crime. (laughs) So I thought, yeah, all right, we'll go, that's close enough. So here we are, Mr Bowie. Hi, my name's Con Eagledon. I'm the author of The Dangerous Book for Boys and Wolf of the Plains, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR. Ah, Mr Bowie, always with the tricky ending of your songs. Sue, or in a season of crime, playing that, sort of in a tribute to Enola Holmes. A Sherlock Holmes spin-off tie-in pastiche that we both found very palatable. In fact, it's... Elementary, Watson. (laughs) All right, so uh, moving along from that here on Zero G today to a tribute to Ron Cobb, uh, the US-Australian artist, writer and director. was born on September the 21st in 1937 and has died on September the 21st this year. Born in Los Angeles, he spent most of his life in Sydney and worked as an animator in his younger days on Sleeping Beauty and served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in Vietnam. He was a freelance artist for various underground press syndicate magazines and the Mother Earth News and did covers for famous monsters of film land. And after 1972 in Australia, he also worked on the Digger magazine, as well as genre video games, uh, doing mostly character designs. Now, he also co-wrote with his wife, uh, Robin Love, back in the day, a Twilight Zone episode. Now, this was uh, one of the new Twilight Zone episodes. And also designed the cover for Jefferson Airplane's 1967 album, After Bathing at Baxter's. Now, that would be more than enough for many people, Mm -hmm. but Ron Cobb is most especially known in genre circles for 
the design work that he's done on a great number of iconic science fiction films. Mm-hmm. So when you think of spaceships and other vehicles from many of these movies, which I shall list in a moment, mm-hmm. you realise how influential they've been on the look of science fiction films. Mm as well as other genre ones too. So I've always been inspired by Ron Cobb's clean-lined, pragmatic, practical-looking, chunky space industrial designs, whether they were for ships, vehicles, spacesuits, buildings, equipment, or any other facet of the future. He brought a, a convincing engineered reality to so many of my favourite films, including Star Wars. He did assorted background aliens for that one. Uh, as well as um, doing a painting once that, that kind of looks very inspirational for the lizard-riding stormtroopers in that first Star uh-huh. Wars movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he designed assort, assorted uh, items for Dark Star, and that was uh, Dan O'Banion's uh, little movie with John Carpenter. Uh, he His design was the, what they used for the actual spaceship. Uh, Alien and Aliens. So he's the man behind the Nostromo, the interior of the Nostromo, uh, the Narcissus space shuttle, lots mm-hmm. of lots of props and elements from that film. Iconic stuff. Yeah. He designed The Last Starfighter. Oh. He was the man behind the upgrade of the DeLorean for Back to the Future. Oh. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, he was the guy who – put together the idea of the flying wing that was supposed to carry the ark. Mm-hmm. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he designed the freighter that they find out in the middle of the desert. Uh, the Abyss, all of that sort of clunky uh, underwater <laughs> technology, it's all his. The Rocketeer he worked on, one of the designs for the uh, the suit and the, and the jetpack. Uh, and even Conan the Barbarian, some of the swords and other items in that. And plus that uh, zany, infamously legendary film that never was, but which still managed to be highly influential, Jodorowsky's Dune. Mm-hmm. So alongside those, he was also the political cartoonist whose biting satire I admired the most, especially in his bleak anti-war and environmental activism pieces. And I couldn't help but admire his workmanlike whole system approach to design, which also manifested in funkily intricate mandelas, uh, as well as f- fake corporate badge designs. So he'd do everything, you know. That's cool. And for me, Ron Cobb's right up there in the pantheon of immortal science fiction artists alongside the likes of uh, Chris Foss, Chris Achilleos, Bob McCall, H.R. Geiger, uh, Jim Burns, Chesley Bonestell, Virgil Finlay. Well, you know, it's a very big pantheon. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a large selection of his work online, so you could just go um, Google Ron Cobb and you'll find his his home site. But, of course, the free books of his artwork, which have become iconic in themselves, are Colour Vision, Cobb, and Cobb Again, and there are some other ones as well. So you can look those up too. very sad to hear that he's no longer with us. He died on his 83rd birthday. Uh, complications of um, a dreadful malady, uh, Louis body dementia. Mm. And he also 
designed the E symbol, which is kind of like a, um, a doubled letter E for the ecology flag. So I hope they're flying that flag at, at half-mast for Ron Cobb, self-actualizing mixed media man as he passes by. So I thought we'd go for a track from After Bathing at Baxter's, which is the um, Jefferson Airplane's uh, third studio album in 1967. The cover's really cool. It's like this sort of uh, steampunk, very complex-looking aeroplane. Not surprising given the, uh, <laughs> given the, the album's provenance. And it's Two Heads, which is the song. And I just chose that because I... I keep remembering that Ron Cobb was a, a character designer as well as a vehicle designer, and a lot of his characters were very strange critters indeed. So this is two heads from Jefferson Airplanes after bathing at Baxter's. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on zero G on three triple R FM. Yeah, if you feel like you've grown two heads there, that's because that was that mm-hmm. titled song from Jefferson Airplanes after bathing at Baxter's. Mm. All right, zombie time, I think. Yes. <laughs> it's like we have a requisite zombie portion of the show. <laughs> it's not intentional. It's just there's a lot of this content out there at the moment as well. <laughs> it's the Z. The Z in zero G stands for zombie. Exactly. Well, this uh, this week we checked out a zombie film, which I thought was, even though it is intense, is a bit of fun as well. Quite a ride. So it's hashtag alive. And yes, there is a hashtag in the title. So the Korean name is Sara Itta, so, which is sort of the same thing. And it's available on Netflix. So it's re- it's released uh, by Netflix internationally, but it was actually released in Korea uh, in cinemas and so on in June of this year, and it did quite well on that release. And then Netflix distributed it glo- more globally in September of this year. So, you know, kind of the cultural consciousness, what's going on in the world and what have you, it, it's become, it was very globally popular, let's say that. So it was doing very well in multiple countries, including Australia and the US and some countries in Europe, Russia, and so on. So. We thought we'd check it out and see what the hype was about. And it piqued our interest. We've done a couple of interesting South Korean films and TV shows lately. So basically the premise. Okay, so I think part of the reason why this film was uh, people really responded to it was it's kind of about a zombie apocalypse, but the story takes place, it's about a man Uh, Well, it starts off about a man who is stuck inside his apartment. (laughs) So he cannot leave his apartment. And this is because there's this plague that's overcome uh, Seoul, so in this case, and he's stuck there. He can't escape. There's zombies all over the place. And this sort of is all set up and happens in the very opening scenes of the film. So I'm not spoiling anything for you. We jump right in and the premise is this dude is stuck inside and he's got whatever food he had at the time, whatever water he had at the time. And then for the remainder of the film, we really are confined to this apartment block um, some other, you know, we, we encounter some other folk, let's just say, uh, and but it's generally about this, it's this kind of survival story. So our main our main fellow is called uh, Chun Wu and that's played by Yu Ah In. And then, look, I mean, I, I don't know if it's spoiling it. She's 
you can see it's sort of implied anyway, but there is another survivor in the vicinity, let's say. Um, and uh, so we have another person there as well, and her name is Yubin, and that is she's played by Park Shin Hui. And, uh, yeah, so we've kind of got these two characters and they're just trying to fight it out and survive, basically. Uh, and I, I don't know, what else can I say? It's That's really the whole story and it's a very quick-paced about an hour and a half or so and I mean one thing I did take away was at the start I was like oh they maybe not going to show much of the the gore like the zombie stuff oh oh no no oh they do it's disgusting (laughs) but the special effects and the makeup uh was really really well done uh before I keep rambling on Rob what was your kind of take on it well before you know, before we can run rampant on a train to Busan, the South Korean zombie movies, they're now a subgenre in themselves. Mm. Uh, this one actually is an adaptation of another script by a guy called Matt Nyla, and mm. he's already done a film called Alone, which hasn't come out yet. So this adaption, <laughs> adaptation, yeah. this adaptation has come out before the movie that it's that it's kind of based on. Well, I think it's they've kind of adapted his screenplay for something that was called Hashtag Alone and they've kind of reworked it, him and the director, who was Cho Il-hyung, and they've worked together to make it suitable for a Korean market and then it turns out it's suitable for a global market because, yeah, a lot of people are watching and a lot of people are liking it. I thought that was interesting too that it's sort of, um, yeah, it's this story that you would think, no, but it originated as this, American story, I guess, and they've said it in Korea and it's worked really well. It also reminds me very much of at least two or three other movies that I've seen with a a very similar premise and premises, which is to say being stuck in one particular apartment during a zombie apocalypse. Mm. Um, I've I've run across dozens of those ones actually (laughs) over the years. Uh, And it also reminds me of Max Brooks's World War Z in that particular book, not the film, there is a sequence where there's a, a Japanese otaku who is stuck in his apartment and has to mm-hmm. battle his way out. And Jun is a gamer in this as well. So there's a there's a resonance there. And that's also the good, actually. I didn't mind that at all. I, f- I felt I was in very familiar territory in that. I think the procedural is really good. Yep, absolutely. As a zombie enthusiast, um, I mean, I'm not as much of an enthusiast as you, Rob, but I did feel that they nailed all the elements that I would have wanted to see. I mean, we've got a very bog standard type of zombie here, but uh, I thought they executed it really well. It was it was possibly um, disgusting and, yeah, really turned my stomach in a great way. I think they did the zombies really well. <laughs> yeah, and they're runners too, these ones. Mm-hmm. And climbers. And climbers. Not, not for- but they're very, I mean, I don't, again, I don't think I'm spoiling anything much, but they're very clear that they don't have special eyesight or special hearing. And I feel like that little element did mean that some of the chase type sequences were a bit more plausible. Because if you have superhuman zombies that are fast, super hearing, super eyesight, of course, no one stands a chance. So I like that they at least threw that tiny tidbit, blink and you'll miss it. And then you kind of realise exactly how these zombies work. So I thought that was good. I was given all the puzzle pieces for how to figure out what this zombie apocalypse looks like. I like the fact that it's also very, very 2020 in a lot of aspects. The technology is all there. Like, you know, there's an excellent use of drones in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. Also, you know, he's keeping an online diary. 
and I, and I love I love that cooking noodles becomes a thing in this too. Yeah, I think that's definitely playing off the popularity of um, Parasite and playing off the popularity that people are engaging a bit more in South Korean cinema and, um, you know, instant noodles or ramyeon are kind of a big part of Korean culture. And I think that's a little nod to, you know, what other markets might recognise. They're like, oh, I know that. You know, I thought that was kind of a cool little thing they included. I wonder if there was product placement in the noodles. I mean, they are the noodles that you should get, let's say that. So it was ah. correct if it was product placement. Yeah. Um, There's another thing yeah. I know absolutely nothing about. Um, <laughs> Noodle cuisine. Oh, well, yeah. you, I mean, now you do because you've watched Hashtag Alive. Yeah. They've schooled you on your noodle making. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mm. All right. So, yeah, it's um, Hashtag Alive. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought, yeah, this is – it felt like a fresh take. mm mm yeah, it's a very simple premise, very simple story. And again, you know, nothing nothing wildly special. I'm it's like you said, it's a cut and paste from um a bunch of different ideas, but uh, I thought it was very simple, very well done. There's a couple of very um sort of towards the end there's a sequence where I was like, "Oh, that's actually quite horrifying what's happening," but it's never taken to the point where I still enjoyed it. It was so out there and it was so like intentionally bloody that I was along for the ride. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, it wasn't ever too much. I think it always had its tongue firmly in cheek. Well, <laughs> yes, so to speak, unless it's been bitten off, which is often the case in mm-hmm. a zombie movie. Now we could have gone with our standard default, which is when we're talking about a South Korean genre movie, we just go and play some K-pop. Mm-hmm. In this case, I found this track called Let's Work Together. Okay. And I feel like that does apply to this movie. Mm-hmm. And this features a guy called Harvey Mandel. But the really important thing is that this comes from a new album called The Blues mm-hmm. by William Shatner and, <laughs> and Canned okay. Heat. So... <laughs> I, I This is indescribable, as are many of Bill Shatner's albums. And let's work together and remember this track. This is George Romero, and I wouldn't be caught dead listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Yeah, Mr. Shatner there and Canned Heat with Let's Work Together featuring Harvey Mandel from Shatner's new album, The Blues. <laughs> <laughs> Not as kooky as I was expecting, no. but, uh, yeah. Oh, there's, there's other ones that are quite kooky. <laughs> but that just that just appealed to me because, you know, it was the, uh, the zombie uh, television show movie that we just looked at. Mm-hmm. All right, now I've, I've really been dying to talk about the new Iron Man comic, the reboot, because they've just turned everything on its head and brought it all back. Mm. Um, suffice to say that all that malarkey about Tony Stark being an AI and not being himself turned out to be a, a cunning plan, a ruse. So he's been okay all along. He actually is Tony. Phew. <laughs> But I'm not going to go there today because something in theme with the uh, the South Korean zombie movie we just looked at, Marvel Zombies Resurrection. This is a new Marvel comic. 
riffing off a very, very long-standing theme that they keep circling back to in Marvel, uh, as well as in DC. We've been running through the new DC Deceased zombie series, and this is just going back to that old theme that they've had once before. It's a four-parter story arc, so four books, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, art by Leonard Kirk, colour art by Rochelle Rosenberg, and the lettering by VCs, Travis Lanham which means you can get set for all sorts of apocalyptic mayhem. It opens with a splash page that reminds me very much of a piece of Jack Kirby artwork. I'm sure they're taking a link from that, of a a zombified Galactus tearing into the city with all of the spawned superheroes. They get turned into zombies too. Oh, cool. And this particular story follows the misadventures of Peter Parker, Spider-Man, who in this one has not been turned into a zombie, although in other incarnations he has been. He's on the run with the Fantastic Four's younger members, which is to say the children of Reed Richards and Susan Storm, who have been turned into zombies. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, Franklin and Valeria. And Peter said to Susan that he would look after the children no matter what. So they're on the run through this devastated earth. They've got an X-Men Forge who's with them and another powered hero called Moonstone. And basically they've got this, um, what would you call it, Uh, a sentinel, which was one of the, um, uh, the mutant hunting robots with them, they've mm-hmm. reprogrammed it to serve as a protector and uploaded an English nanny's persona into it to be oh. more comforting to the children in this horrific circumstance. <laughs> okay. They also have a special secret weapon to help them fight the legions of zombies. It's Chewie, mm-hmm. the cat from Captain Marvel. Of course. That about sets the tone for this. It's all pretty damn grim, and I don't mean Ben Grimm, although I should do because he's been turned into a zombie too. Mm. Uh, So really amazing stuff in in this one. The the artwork is actually pretty gruesome uh, and also very, very dark because a lot of it takes place at night, and that's entirely appropriate for this particular Marvel Zombies resurrection. So they're bringing the old guys back again the undead superheroes. The cover is great. It's um, Spider-Man swinging away from an undead Galactus. So mm-hmm. pretty creepy stuff. You know, I like the Marvel zombie strand so much. I did my own um, uh, scratch-built uh, iron zombie character as an action figure, or as I should say, half an action figure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's about it for Zero G, isn't it? For today gosh and we will go out with a track i think which will also serve to memorialize the late great u.s australian artist ron cobb from the film alien with jerry goldsmith's wonderfully evocative and creepy main title theme from that movie alien mm-hmm. uh, a movie for which cobb designed the nostromo originally and the interiors of the spaceship and the shuttle narcissist and all sorts of other convincing science fiction hardware for that. So thank you to Megan. Thank you, Rob. And thank you to Kayla, our podcaster, and to Triple R as well. We're starting to see the numbers come in from the Radiothon. Mm -hmm. Very, very healthy. And I really feel not exactly humble because that's probably going way too far for Rob Jan. 
<laughs> but very grateful for the community spirit that's kept the station going in these most challenging of circumstances. So, hey, you're done good, folks. Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.